Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So, here we are. Hard to believe it's our last night already, huh? Finding the beauty of, uh, of this New England winter night. Blessing our, our presence here. <clears throat> so I'd like to talk tonight about a central question related to, <clears throat> to being human and to this uh, practice that we've been exploring. Question that's come up a few times in our discussions. And uh, a question that I you know I really struggled with personally for many years um, when I w was first introduced to nonviolent communication, having been on this uh, path of Buddhist practice for a number of years already. And that's this question of what does it mean to have needs? Especially on a path, if one is on, a, on this path that teaches letting go, non-attachment, and even anatta, non-self, which is a fairly subtle teaching to understand. So what are these needs? Are they skillful? Are they unskillful? Um, what are they? Are they mental formations? Are they consciousness? How does this fit together? What does it mean to have dreams, to have aspirations or deeply held values on this path? This is a quote from a poet by the name of Eve Merriam. She said, I dream of giving birth to a child who will ask, Mother, what was war? So what does it mean to have a need and be alive? So this word need is... Uh, can be complicated. And that's the first thing I want to talk about, what we mean by that. A need is what matters. It's that which we find meaningful in life, that which nourishes us. Something that contributes in a fundamental way. We could say sometimes it's a value, but not all needs are values. Their core root aspects of being human. Sometimes I like to talk about them as facets of our humanity. They're a fact. They're part of being human. Just like seeing and hearing is part of being human, just like needing to eat and breathe and drink is part of being human. 
We have needs for sustenance, for safety, for love and affection, for empathy and understanding. We have needs for creativity or play, for community. We have a need for rest, physical rest, emotional rest, spiritual rest. We have a need for autonomy or freedom and we have a need for meaning. So we use this word need as a signal, to signal the importance of these, that they're fundamental. So a human being will die without water or food after a certain period of time. For water, it's pretty short. For food, you can, you can go a few days, maybe up to a week, maybe longer. Air, minutes, not air, you die. But the absence of other needs comes at a cost also. It's just delayed in time. Without empathy or love, without a sense of meaning in life, a human being can, come pre can become pretty contorted and twisted. So that's why we use the word need, because they're fundamental to our existence. And the understanding is that every human action, every reaction, every behavior can be understood, can be seen as an attempt to meet some need that we all share. So these needs aren't a liability or a problem or a weakness that'll somehow go away if we meditate long enough. They're a deep expression of our humanity and, and part of what it is to be here on the planet. That we enter the world vulnerable. Vulnerability is the first condition of our humanity. So needs uh, illuminate the fact that we have more in common than we, than we have different from one another. And this, this uh, impulse to meet needs is like a plant turning towards the light. In the, in the Dharma we say all beings want to be happy. It's the movement of life within us trying to fulfill itself. We can understand uh, our uh, inborn desire to meet needs as an expression of the heart's yearning to move towards wholeness. We're fundamentally interdependent creatures we depend on our environment, and we depend on one another. This is a quote from Mother Teresa, from a book called In the Heart of the World. She says, there is much suffering in the world, very much. Material suffering, suffering from hunger, suffering from homelessness, from all kinds of disease, but I think still that the greatest suffering 
is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. So we have needs. This is, this is part of what it is to be human, to be interdependent. The idea of being a separate, independent person that doesn't need anything is a fiction. This is part of the, the teaching on anatta, says, on non-self. That the, the belief that we could ever exist independently and separate from others and from this world is a figment of our imagination. Everything we experience is connected to and dependent on everything else. This is from Albert Einstein. He wrote, a hundred times every day I remind myself that my inner and outer life depend on the labors of other men and women, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the same measure as I have received and am still receiving. So the question isn't whether or not to have needs, because that's a fact. The question is how we relate to them. It's not about eliminating our needs, about denying them, or somehow transcending them, but about understanding them and relating to them wisely. We can learn how to see human needs as a gift rather than a liability as an invitation to participate in the flow of life. When we contemplate the way this world works, we see that the air that we breathe in comes from the trees breathing out. That the air that we breathe out, the trees breathe in. That the water moves from the sky to the rain to the snow to the rivers and the streams, to the ocean and back up to the sky, that everything is a cycle. Everything is this rhythm of exchange, of giving and taking, and that we're part of that. These bodies are part of that, and these minds and hearts are part of that. So just consider, how does it feel to give? How does it feel? to contribute to, to another human being. The joy of that, of being able to help somebody out, not because you have to. And what would it be like to recognize our own needs as a gift to others rather than a burden? giving others the opportunity to experience the joy of giving. Have you ever tried to give someone a gift and they say, no, 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 really, it's okay, no. And you know how that feels? You're like, no, really, I want you to have this, please. It, it would give me joy to give it to you. So just turn it around. 
So one of the phrases that Marshall Rosenberg used, one of the analogies he used that I love, is he talked about inviting others to meet our needs, like we're asking for flowers on our table rather than air for our lungs. If I ask you for, like, I need, I need this, like it's air for my lungs, that quality of grasping makes it very difficult to engage joyfully in this cycle of giving and receiving. But if I invite you to give, like, hey, would you like to get some flowers for dinner? Sure, why not? Sounds lovely. So the question isn't whether or not to have needs, it's how we relate to them. If we don't allow ourselves to relate to them consciously, with wisdom, with equanimity, then we start to lose some freedom. Because they're still present, and they'll be operating under the surface. So when we have some need, some deep value, some yearning for something that's meaningful that would contribute to us, and there's a gap between what we long for and what's possible or available in life, what do we do? Usually we have two habitual responses. Internally, we may deny it, we suppress it, we cut ourselves off from it, or we give up. Well, it doesn't matter, it's not possible anyway. You know, it's, not, it's never gonna work out. And this leads to, uh, can lead to bitterness, resentment, sense of the spirit being broken or just numb, empty. Or the, the other side, which is that we force we grasp at it. We try to coerce or manipulate or control or demand things to get what we want. And with both of these, as, as we, we all know, it comes at a cost. So if we deny our needs, if we try to fight them or resist them or suppress them, one thing that happens is they're more likely to run us unconsciously the more we try to push it away, the more it pushes back. To resist something, you have to grasp it first. And we've seen this, uh, the, the terrible results of this uh, suppression of human needs uh, in the church with uh, you know, sexual abuse and other, uh, it's uh, all, you know, almost all religious traditions where you have uh, religious leaders abusing power for, uh, sec for, se for sexuality. Why? Why does it happen? Because the relationship with the needs is not characterized by wisdom and balance. When there's that suppression, that denial, you can't deny life. Try to stop breathing. It's, it's this life energy in us. So it doesn't mean we have to act on it, but we have to have a relationship with it, have to be aware of it. 
Otherwise, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be driving us unconsciously. When we try to resist or suppress our needs, uh, we may end up acting in less caring ways, even if we're trying to hide them or pretend they're not there. It also takes a lot of energy to avoid or suppress or resist our needs. So it can be exhausting. It comes at a cost in uh, our well-being. We can feel, end up feeling isolated or depressed or despairing. Sometimes when we suppress a need, it ends up exploding. So you ever uh, find yourself blowing up and screaming over something that you've been trying to uh, not care about, trying to suppress? And how much of that scream is being mad at ourselves for not having spoken up sooner? And then the other side, when we cling to a need, when we identify with it and grasp at it, we become fixated on, uh, on having it our way or on satisfying a particular value in a very specific way. So that leads to a lot of struggle. It leads to a lot of conflict often. When we become over-identified or fixated on meeting our needs in a certain way, it, it uh, shuts down the capacity of the heart for goodwill, for empathy, for generosity. As I was saying before, when we start making demands, others are less willing to contribute. It takes all the joy out of giving when we make demands. When we, be, when we get fixated and, and uh, obsessed, contracted around a need with this kind of grasping energy, we start living in a very narrow space. Our options get very limited. It limits our creativity because we get so uh, kind of there's this tunnel vision on this one thing needing it to be a certain way. And this also wears us out. It blocks our ability to be effective through all of the tension and struggle inside. This is one of the reasons why activists burn out so much, the attachment to a specific outcome, to needing things to be a certain way. So Nelson Mandela, who you all know, spent 27 years in prison and uh, led South Africa to the end of apartheid. He said, when you can sit in the face of insanity and dislikes and be free from the need to change it, then you are truly free. Sure. So... When you can sit in the face of insanity and dislikes and be free from the need to change it, then you are truly free. 
So here's someone who worked for social change for his whole adult life, talking about being free from the need to change things. What's he talking about? He's talking about the relationship with the need, that quality of grasping, of needing it to be different or else. That's where the tension and the struggle and the suffering and the energy drain and the conflict come from. So how do we live? How do we live in a world that's outside of our control with needs? Personally, socially, politically? How do we have needs without falling into these extremes of grabbing on tightly or pushing it away and denying it? What does it mean to have a deep value or need and not be attached to it? To find the space to have a sense of kind of a relaxed orientation about what we want, whether we get it or not. In our personal lives, or, or even in social and political realms. Why, why would we even want to release the attachment to deeply held causes, like values for peace or justice or sustainability? So what I hope to share here, what I hope to illuminate is that non-attachment, this relationship of sometimes what's known as equanimity, actually means a wholehearted engagement with life. The non-attachment is real, true non-attachment is only, is only possible through a wholehearted engagement with our humanity. Being truly non-attached to our needs paradoxically means allowing ourselves to feel them fully. To truly know and experience them and then to transform the relationship with them. The relationship of grasping and aversion, of over-identification or denial. When we can acknowledge and embrace these parts of ourselves, these parts of our humanity, and experience them fully as a deep expression of what it is to be alive, we start to have more choice about how to move through the world, about how to actually meet our needs in ourselves and others, and we have more energy to contribute to the world in a meaningful way. And in terms of social transformation, this kind of non-attachment, this relationship with needs of letting go, of allowing, of a, a balanced engagement that is not fixated on a certain outcome, is essential for sustainable work. So how do we cultivate this kind of relationship? Well, 
one of the first parts is beginning to examine and become aware of the core messages that we've internalized about needs through the socialization process, through our culture, through our family or our religion. Lots of times we, um, we associate needs with a kind of powerlessness, a kind of uh, an inner lack, not having something, a vulnerability or a helplessness. And culturally that the appearance, and I emphasize that word, the appearance of not having needs is seen as, as powerful or strong or somehow whole. So we have these associations with the word need, of being needy or dependent. And again, this is based on the myth of self-sufficiency, that, that any human being can exist independent without, without others. And we see this in the, the public sphere, the images, the images of being... Uh, happy and successful, of being young and not needing anything and being healthy, right? Rather than being sick and needing help or having trouble making rent or starting to get old and needing support or not being happy, struggling a little bit and needing some empathy or guidance or love or tenderness. So we're constantly bombarded with these images that tell us that we shouldn't have needs. There's a difference between self-sufficiency and self-reliance. This uh, colleague and friend of mine, Mickey Kashtan, makes this nice distinction. Self-sufficiency is that myth that we're somehow can don't need anything, whereas self-reliance is the sense of having resources within that we can draw on, inner resources, even as we have interdependent needs. So there are these myths, there, there are these, uh, con these uh, stories and conditions we get from our society from growing up. And then if you've been on this Buddhist path, then you get a whole other trip laid on you of uh, letting go and not having a self and... Uh, you know, monastics, not needing anything, and living in a cave, and you should be able to let go of everything, and that whole thing. Well, how well is that working out? <laughs> and if you actually look at it, it's not true. Monastics live on alms. They're dependent <laughs> on the generosity of others for food, medicine, clothing, and shelter. Completely dependent not self-sufficient at all. Even uh, monks, stories I've read and heard of monks living in, in a cave, solitary, for years. Obviously, they're getting food. But in their meditation, they're drawing on deep connection with lineage, with teachers, sometimes with spirits and ancestors. So there's a sense of relationship and connection those needs are being met in other ways. Sexuality gets a really bad trip in Buddhism. 
you know, cut off the bridge if you've ever read the suttas, you know, just stop that. <laughs> one of one teacher, Ajahn Sachito, talks about needing needing to transmute sexual energy rather than cut it off. He says you need to enhance an alternative. You can't just put the fire out without something that ends up being a little damaging to your attitudes or your psychologies. People who haven't enhanced an alternative, who are celibate, who are trying to cut off this sexual energy, he says, generally get some weird attitudes about sexuality or anything to do with life at all. You know, you get that strange kind of sinful feeling. Everything living and vital and playful is sinful. Sound familiar? So this is the effect of, of denying or suppressing or trying to cut off. And the messages we get. One of the other core messages we get is that having needs is selfish, self-centered. And again, we can recognize our interdependence. None of us exist alone in isolation. There's a famous um, rabbi at the um, beginning of the common era named uh, Hillel, who's one of the things he's famous for having taught is these three questions. He says, if I am not for me, who will be? If I am only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? So if I am not for myself, who will be? If you're not going to value your own needs, who will? If we're not going to honor the the depth of what's meaningful to us in life, of what we value and what we care about and what we long for, who's going to do that? If I am only for myself, what am I? But if that's all we do, then what? Right? Then what kind of a human being are we? In nonviolent communication, we talk about the obnoxious phase. This is when we become aware that we have needs and we haven't yet recognized it, so do other people. <laughs> and so it's all about me and my needs, and speaking up for my needs, and asking for my needs to be met. If I am, o if I am only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? The work that needs to be done, needs to be done today. So, in being aware of our needs, Can we recognize that there's an aspect of these values that we have that are a yearning to connect, that are actually not self-centered at all, that are about participating in life? There's an aspect of our needs that's about giving and sharing and contributing in a meaningful way. It's one of the deepest needs we have as human beings, is the need to contribute the need to be connected to something greater than ourselves that brings us meaning. So there, paradoxically, there's an aspect of our needs that's actually about transcending our sense of self. 
and honoring our needs, participating in this flow, this exchange of energy and resources, heals the sense of alienation and isolation and separation. When we don't see these, these ideas that needs are selfish or needy or, uh, you know, about being powerless and helpless or that there's something wrong with us for having needs, it uh, makes it very difficult to relate to them with wisdom, to allow ourselves to experience them. We, we can find ourselves guarding against appearing, quote, needy to others, not wanting to appear vulnerable. Or sometimes we, we end up walling off inside to protect ourselves from the disappointment of asking and not having our need met. So instead we we don't allow ourselves to go there. Or even worse, the fear of what would it mean about me if I asked and it wasn't met. Do I matter? Is there something wrong with me? Do I belong? The possibility of facing that belief or fear or perception can be so frightening that we'd rather not experience the need. So we suppress it, we avoid it. And in doing so, we, we become less free inside. And then having needs becomes an experience of shame, something we try to hide or pretend, something we learn to ignore or avoid. So the practice, the practice of meditation, and in my experience, the uh, uh, practice of nonviolent communication is about transforming this, about starting to understand our relationship with our needs and seeing that there's a way of relating to needs this habitual way that's about grasping. That's about wanting to take something from life and make it mine and possess it. Needing things to be a certain way. There's a quality of thirst to it called tanha, craving and upadana, attachment. We want to become something, we want to get something and have it and make it ours. And the avoidance and suppression is just the other side of that. But that there's a different kind of energy, there's a different relationship we can have with this fundamental aspect of being human and being alive. A different kind of wanting, that's, that's an opening, that's an expansive energy that's about rising up and coming forward to meet life. That's about opening and entering the experience of being human 
allowing ourselves to feel what it is to be on this planet, vulnerable, interdependent, uncertain. And when we, when we can begin to find that, that relationship with our values, This is the doorway into that experience, that, re that relationship of giving and receiving, of contributing to life and being nourished by life. So the aim is to learn to be at peace with whatever needs we have, just exactly as they are. So developing this relationship with our needs means first acknowledging their existence. Just being real about it. Yeah, this matters to me. This is something that's important to me. This is something that would nourish me or contribute to me. And then as we've been doing over these last few days, learning to distinguish the need from our preferences from our strategies for how we want it to look. And investigating the feeling of being attached to a specific strategy, to a specific preference. So the more we can start to unhook from how we want it to look and how we expect it to be, and just acknowledge the need itself, the more options we have. The and therefore, the more likely we are to have the need met, ironically. Opening to our needs also often means uh, being willing to feel some emotions, being willing to feel some sadness and mourn the times when things haven't worked out the way we'd like or we haven't been met by life or by others in the way that we would enjoy. It means being willing to entertain, as I was saying before, those fears of what if it doesn't work out. But as we do that, that process of, of allowing ourselves to feel our humanity is strengthening. We learn how to honor the need without needing it. how to honor it without needing it to be a certain way. And so more and more we start inclining towards a relaxed and open acceptance of our values, these needs, these longings, without any attempt, however subtle, to ignore them, to deny them, to pretend we don't have this need or to distance ourselves from it, to be harsh with ourselves for having this need, to tell ourselves we should be different or we shouldn't, or to have any negative judgments about it. So some of you know I spent, uh, I spent a few years uh, living as a Buddhist renunciate in white, as an anagarika. It's kind of the first level of training in becoming a monk. And um, 
there was wonderful training, very deeply meaningful time for me in my life. And there were certain needs that weren't met in that form. Some needs were met very deeply. My needs for um, learning and growth and integrity, uh, my needs for peace, my needs for a deep connection with source. But there were other needs that weren't met. Certain needs for community, certain needs for expression or play, a certain kind of need for contributing in a meaningful way. And had I stayed in the belief that I shouldn't have needs or had I stayed attached to a certain idea of what it looked like, what it, what it means to be committed on the Buddhist path, I wouldn't have been honoring the truth of this particular person in this particular life at this particular time in history. And I recognize this, is, this has been useful and meaningful, but this is not the path for me. There are other aspects of, of there are other aspects of who I am that aren't being nourished, that are important. So you could look at that and say, well, you know, you're too attached. You couldn't let go of those. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's accurate. The letting go, well, it was actually a deep letting go to acknowledge, no, there's, there's a, I'm honoring the uniqueness of what life looks like, of what, how life is expressing itself through this person and this being. And so coming to this relationship of uh, balance and non-attachment with, with needs means allowing ourselves to feel and study the wanting, to observe it and experience it, and to begin to sense the difference between that grasping energy of wanting and the, the, the tenderness and the vulnerability of opening to being human, of having a need without closing down around it or demanding it opening to the truth of what it is to be alive. And when we can acknowledge and relate to our needs in this way, when we can open to our interdependence as human beings without being tied to a specific outcome, we discover a deep well of strength a deep resource within us. That's not dependent on what happens, on how people relate to us, or whether or not they satisfy our needs in the way we would like. So we can, um, we can think about meeting our needs as satisfying them, getting them met, getting what I want, 
But we can also think about meeting our needs as in encountering them, like to meet someone face to face. And it's that encounter with our needs, that willing encounter that opens the, that opens the possibility to living in this, uh, this rich way. When we can allow ourselves to, to, to feel, to feel this, it softens the heart and it opens us to compassion. And this is, this is, the, this is the beautiful paradox about needs, that they take us beyond ourselves. That very thing that we fear will trap us, that we fear will make us not worthy or self-centered when we're actually willing to face it and encounter it and meet it on its own terms and fully open to it and go, ah, this is what it's like to be human and to want to be loved, to want to belong, to yearn for meaning and creativity and rest and freedom and beauty and peace. This is what it's like when we open to that and really feel it. We touch something deeper than our own personality. We recognize that we're in touch with something that connects us to humanity. That every need that we have can remind us that we're not alone. That we're part of the human family. And we start to see, as we say, the dignity or the beauty of our needs, these facets of what it is to be human and to be alive. So learning to let go of our attachment to the outcome, of how we want it to look, of how we expect it to be, of our preferences in life for having our needs met. And that you might scratch your head and go, well, isn't the whole point of having a need to get it met? So the movement, the movement inside us to... Um, to fulfill our needs isn't the same as grasping or attachment. It's that, it's that invitation to enter the flow of life, to participate in what it is to be here. Letting go doesn't mean giving up or getting rid of. It means letting go of the clinging letting go of that relationship of needing it to be a certain way, of the must, the should, it should be. I've learned the most about this. I talked about disrobing. I've learned the most about this from uh, having chronic illness and from my family, my immediate family. So having chronic illness is a study in non-attachment to outcome. We see when we get attached to having our need for health met, how exhausting it is, the suffering of fighting against reality, of trying to control something that's ultimately outside of our control. But that doesn't mean we stop taking care of our body. 
doesn't mean we stop trying to get well. It doesn't mean we stop doing everything in our power to heal. But we do it from a different place. We do it from a place of non-attachment, of letting go, of acceptance. This is how it is. I would love for it to be otherwise. And it's not up to me. But that doesn't mean I can't still try to take care of myself. Because I have a deep need to be healthy, to be well. And then with family, we talked about addiction earlier, it came up. That'll teach you to let go. Having a family member who has an addiction or a family member who has a mental illness and to see that it's not in our control. And that we so want it to be different. So what do we do? Do you force it? Do you demand it? Do you give up? Or do you find that balance of being in the vulnerability, of fully allowing yourself to have this deep yearning and to be willing to participate in the experiment of being alive without knowing where it's going to go and just putting it out there. So understanding that uh, things are not in our control in this world, that the outcome isn't up to us, doesn't mean that we don't act. It's actually the essential understanding for being able to have sustainable and effective action. So we're, we're living in... Uh, Tough times, tough times these days on the planet. Human, the human species is, uh, we're struggling, you know? And there's strong forces at play, strong forces in society, strong forces in Mother Earth, in Mother Nature. And so there's this gap, right? There's this experience of what's possible for humanity that we may sense. And then the reality and the gap between that. And it's heartbreaking. That ten the tension in that gap So what do we do? How do we relate to our needs for our deep yearning for peace, for our deep yearning uh, for all beings on the planet, human and non-human, to be safe and protected, to have their basic needs met, to have food and water and shelter? Without this capacity to learn how to open to our needs, without grasping to them or denying them, without this quality of equanimity, 
we fall into the extreme. We fall into an extreme. We either either our heart becomes overwhelmed, and we start to drown. We drown in the sorrow, or the despair, or the opposite. We get reactive. We lash out with anger or bitterness or rage, or we just shut off. We just go numb, indifferent. If we, if we, without learning this balance, uh, we're at war inside with the world. And even if we're working for change, if we're working from that place of needing it to be different, of being attached and grasping at our needs, it exhausts our energy, it burns us out, and we run the risk of recreating the very structures and systems that we're trying to change because we're coming from an energy of demand and must and should and us versus them. Uh, there's an organization I donate to called Partners in Health that was started by a, a doctor named Paul Farmer. There's a book about him called Mountains Beyond Mountains, written by Tracy Kidder. And uh, he started his work in Haiti. And he would walk, no roads or anything, he would walk for seven hours to see one patient in Haiti to check on them. Spent all day just to treat one person. And people would ask him, what are you doing? How are you, you know, you're wasting your time. You know, how can you take that much time to just treat one person? And he, talk, he talked about his work as, uh, as, the, as just the willingness to fail rather than to succeed, this myth of, of, of succeeding and saying, you know, to that person I'm making a difference and that's worth it to me. And through this book that was written about his work, uh, this organization was founded, and uh, it's, he's now the, they, they bring health care and medicine to uh, uh, people in the most need in different places in the world, providing a lot of direct care. So how can we work for change in a way that's sustainable, not knowing what's possible? I want to read a couple of quotes that uh, speak to this. This is from Thomas Merton. He wrote, Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. So there it is, this non-attachment to having the need met in a specific way, to a specific outcome, but doing it 
because the need matters, because, the, because of the value, the rightness, the goodness of the choice. This is from um, Vandana Shiva, who's an um, Indian activist. She's trained as a scientist. Can anyone, does anyone know, is she a physicist, I think? She was a physicist, either physicist or biologist, and she's, she works for uh, social change in India and has been very active in the movement for um, uh, preserving the, the right of uh, farmers and people in India to save their seeds. The big corporations, the big agribusiness corporations have passed legislation making it illegal to save seeds, to keep farmers um, dependent on uh, buying seeds from, from them. Uh, a very inspiring person. So somebody asked her in an interview how she has so much energy to work for change. What keeps you so alive? This is what she said. Well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged, but this much I know. I don't allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit, without thinking of the bigness that you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do, because these are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think that getting that freedom is a social duty. And I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescriptions and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. So a deep engagement with life, a deep acknowledgement of the values and needs that she holds dear without attachment, without tying herself up in knots. I function like a free being, free to have needs and free to let go of the outcome. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. I hope it's useful in some way. Let's, uh, let's just sit for a moment.
So it's about 10 after 8. So let's take... Uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.